Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. I'm Gabriel Mercotti, and today I am really excited because James Scowcroft joins me in the studio and down the line. We have, we, we're so lucky. We don't have just one person down the line. We have two people down the line. One of them, James Ducker, who uh, was at the Etihad where he got to, to witness that shellacking from uh, Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool. And the other one is Rory Smith. Now, he's been away for a while. He's been traveling the globe. And, of course, we welcome him back, and we're very excited to have him. We'll be talking about events at White Hart Lane as well as what the future holds for Bale and Ronaldo. See, I'm throwing it forward. See what I'm doing there? Let's chat about the continuing Klopp factor. Ducker, uh, you were at the game. This is kind of like the idealized Klopp, the the the, the Klopp of early Borussia Dortmund, high counter pressing, pressing at the uh, at the right times. These speedy guys who who torture defenders, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Those that maybe haven't seen a lot of Dortmund and Klopp's teams, you know, down the years, but have you know read about him, heard about him, they watch that game and think, ah, this is what everyone's um, going on about. This is what he. Uh, this is what he means about hunting in packs high up the pitch and um, sort of swarming all over um, opponents. And Liverpool did that extremely well. It was very interesting listening to sort of Klopp afterwards. He was at pains really to encourage sort of patience and, and a lot of perspective and kept going on about how, hang on a minute, we, we lost 2-1 against um, Palace the previous, uh, a couple of weeks earlier. And I think that was very sensible, particularly because it was about as bad a performance as, a, as I think I've ever seen from Manchester City under Arab ownership. They were so bad that I think that had, has to... Well, we'll, we'll, inform, we'll, we'll get the City We'll get the city in a moment. I just want to keep it with with, with Liverpool now. Scoey, when, when, when you watch this, the obvious, and, and then we see the highlights of Match of the Day, and, and they showed us, you know, look how well they're pressing. Did you ever play on teams that pressed high up the pitch aggressively? Is it really that tiring and unpleasant I mean they, they, when it works it, they make it look so easy yeah I played in teams I played for a team for a manager that wanted to press high up the pitch and okay, I, I think you could name names you haven't played for that many managers no sorry this was at Leicester it was actually in the Premiership um, Premier League sorry and we had a problem it was the, the season um, of Arsenal's Invincible so there were some very good teams who was your it. manager Mickey Adams was the manager mm. and we played in a high pressing team and at the start of the season it worked, but when teams sort of figured us out a little bit and played against the press, played away, so if you can break that first line and you can take four or five players out of the game, 
your back four is so exposed, it, it's untrue. And, and, and in the end, we it it cost us relegation. Where if we'd have actually sat back, I think we'd have probably stayed up because we had enough. Will it work for Liverpool? I think if you go to a Manchester City, you look a little bit jaded, a little bit half-hearted, which they do do a lot. I think that technique, that tactic works, but... I just think at home where teams are going to drop and drop and drop and, and defend deep, you, you're going to leave yourself very exposed at the back, i.e. like Palace exposed them uh, two weeks ago. Roy, are you surprised that he did this so aggressively away from home? Or do, do you think that maybe he kind of felt, man, it's City away, why don't we have? Why don't we try this? I, you know, I won't start Benteke, I'll have the little guys running around. And even if we lose this game, it's almost like, we've sort of budgeted for a loss and it'll be part of the learning experience. I, I take your point. I'm not sure I necessarily agree. It, it is one of those games where maybe he, he looked at it and thought, right, we, we have to try and do something which is on paper City are better. But I think what, what Scoey said is right. I think that there, there are circumstances where a pressing game is, is the best way to defend. And that against a side like City, even when they're playing relatively well, not obviously if they're at their very best and they're a different, a different proposition, but if they play relatively well, you press them, there are the opportunities there to press if they want to build the play. The, the problem that Klopp will have and has had to miss that in his palace is, is he's got to find a way for Liverpool to break down teams that are just sitting deep. And that's not just been a problem for Liverpool themselves recently. It was a problem for Klopp at Dortmund last season, mitigated by injuries to an extent. But that's where he has to find a plan B. He has to find a way of... I mean, pressing should work, I guess, against a team sitting deep. But he has to find a way of making it work against a team sitting deep. Well, uh, that's not they can't do that, and I think that the impression from Saturday obviously was overwhelmingly positive. You're but, relying on people to make mistakes when you press, basically, yeah. aren't you? So that that that's good. That's a big part of football. But ultimately, as well, to, to win games of football, you've got to you've got to have more than that. You have more than that in your locker. You've got to be able to break teams down. You've got to be able to to play around players to keep possession to slow the game down at times. And you know that that's ultimately going to be Klopp's challenge. Well, that's that, I mean that, that was partly what he tried to do last year. He tried to transition from a game that was so reliant on the on on the counter pressing to a game where, especially against weaker opponents, they they could be perhaps a, a little more multifaceted and not rely on pressing. Because I think the other thing he realized is that it takes a lot out of you uh, over time. And uh, Rory, I guess it's an inevitable debate, but there's a school of thought that says, well. I don't want Christian Benteke pressing and, you know, I look at these players and does he have the guys to do that who, who, who can physically do that, you know, on a more regular basis? Yeah, he's got players who I think are suited to it in terms of Coutinho and Lallana and, and Firmino. Whether whether Benteke and Sturridge, I think I guess they'd be your, your two big question marks. Can they do it regularly and effectively from the front? Sturridge did it under Rodgers in the 2013-14 season when Liverpool pressed very high as well. Benteke, I think, is a more rounded player than he's given credit for. But what, what actually occurred to me is that the answer might that might be the answer to the initial problem, which is that Liverpool do need to find another way of playing. They need to find a way of, of attacking sides who are prepared to sit deep, who won't come and play, who won't have the, possess, have the possession in positions where they can make mistakes that Liverpool can benefit from. And and perhaps the answer to that is, is in Benteke and Sturridge, and that when you're at home against the, you know, a, a bottom half of the table side, Maybe you play those two and you, you kind of change the focus of your play a little bit and you don't rely so heavily on, on just pressing. You have a more kind of front-foot approach. So it may be that Liverpool, for all that he doesn't have the quality of the squad he had at Dortmund a couple of years ago, maybe he has a more kind of multifaceted squad, I guess. I mean, I think obviously there are times when, when, when you need to press, but the reason generally, as, as Scobie said, the, the reason I'm not a huge fan is that if you know what you're doing, you figure the opposition out. 
the amazing thing with you can break a press with with a bad team simply lumping the ball into space, or you can break the press with with a good team if you have skillful players who can who can pass through the press, or you can just end up fouling people, which is what happens when you when when you press a lot and picking up yellow cards. So it's really really difficult to do, and and, and I think Klopp's Liverpool. I mean, I, th- I think I think he was right to 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 come out and and sort of dampen enthusiasm. Because until they, they they learn this properly, it's not going to be like this every week, is it? It's not. It's not at all. And I think what Scurry and Rory were saying is that in some perverse way, almost, is that he might have better success playing a high sort of high line and a high pressing game against those sides that are determined to pass pass through, sort of regardless of the opponents that they're playing. The likes of City, obviously, the likes of Chelsea, Spurs, perhaps. Maybe Manchester United. They'll probably have more success on that front than against sides who would be prepared to try and take out the first line by lumping it into a target man or lumping it down for sort of fast wingers to chase. But James, um, you know, I think Man City played to their downfall a little bit at the weekend as well. But if you're playing against a team that are going to press, and, and what they did well, Liverpool is they set a little bit of a trap, so they just drop off a bit, throw it out the back, right? Now we're going to come, and I, I just think. Man City were just a little bit naive at times playing against a Liverpool side like that. I don't think they were more than that naive. I, I just think it was a, I think it was a individual and collective shambles. And that that sort of back four, I looked at that back four before the game, and I thought that looks a recipe for disaster. And so it proved. And Mangal is not comfortable on the ball. They were ring rusty. Sanyi came out after the game and said that his mind and body weren't right after the Paris terrace attacks and shouldn't have played is a whole other story I, I think it was just a dreadful dreadful performance by them and I, and, I, and I couldn't talk about it earlier but I do think any praise for Liverpool as well as they did play has to be informed in part by how, how sort of risible City were Okay well let's inform that now Rory I think like me you're, you're, you're a big Manuel Pellegrini fan I look at this and bearing in mind that there might be injuries or whatever else but you know they're playing in the Champions League. They've already qualified, and they have a dead dead rubber coming up. Uh, we never quite know what condition players are in when they come back from international breaks. But and obviously, company was out. Otamendi for one of the two center halves seems like a very obvious obvious solution. Fernandinho in place of Fernando. Fernandinho's I think has arguably been one of their better players this year. Seems like a very obvious solution. I, I don't know who that was impersonating. Yaya Torre on the pitch in his first 45 minutes, but it's probably as bad as he's been since coming to City. This is all stuff for which we blame the manager, right? Yeah, it is. I think there's. Um, I think the, the first thing to say is that City, you know, there, there is this. There has always been this suspicion that when Silva doesn't play, when Company doesn't play, when Aguero doesn't play, or when any combination of those three don't play, that that City aren't anywhere near what they what they can be. I think that's given the amount of money they've spent and the amount of money they've had available and also to an extent the time they've had to do it, I think that's astonishing that they're still in that situation. Teams always rely on players, but City shouldn't be that reliant on those three players. I think there were some strange decisions made, Otamendi being, being the principal one. But the, the other thing is that City, they kind of do this, not regularly, but you, there's always a chance with City that they're, they're going to turn up and be a little bit slapdash. It does happen. And it has it's characterised them under Pellegrini, it characterised them under Mancini, it characterised them under going back to Mark Hughes. You know, just occasionally they'd, they'd have these games where where they just don't really don't really turn up. And I'm not quite sure 
why it is. I, I mean, you, you kind of have your own theories and how legitimate they are, I'm not sure, but the, James watches them a lot more than I do. But every so often, it's not, it's not like, you know, United under Ferguson or, or the good Chelsea under Mourinho, where you think, right, they're going to turn up, they will be at it. City, there is always a chance, not, not a 50-50 chance, but like a one-in-five chance, that they'll just turn up, decide they're not bothered and be terrible. Ducker, is, do you understand what Rory's saying? Is, is he right or is he, or is he talking nonsense? No, I, I mean, I, I, I have felt, I've been watching sort of City at close, close quarters for, you know, a long time now, and particularly, you know, with great interest since, um, since the ownership change, is that they, they are capable of moments of just sort of breathtaking football and times you watch them and you think that this team should just go on and, and dominate domestic football and, and certainly have a good stab at it in Europe. And then, yeah, the, running through them just seems to be this occasional fatal flaw. What surprised me on Saturday is, I, I I admire Pellegrini's sort of real attacking ethos and, you know, desire once he's got, you know, one goal to go and get a second, and once he's got a second to go and get a third, and once he's got a third to go and get a fourth. I really like that about him. But I also think that there were signs, that there have been some signs this season of him allying that sort of attacking sensibilities with a, with a greater pragmatic streak. And you saw it against Seville, you know, Fernando and Fernandino, you know, in Torre in midfield and gave him a much stronger base. I thought they were absolutely outstanding in that game. They did it again against Villa. It was nil-nil, but they, how they didn't win that game, I don't know. So I didn't understand going into this game, even if Fernandino and Otamendi had long journeys back, why he didn't go with a midfield three again, which had been so successful. I don't know whether it's a stubborn streak or... Or, or maybe something has happened with Fernandino and Otamendi that you know we're not yet aware of. I mean, he wouldn't really elaborate on that um, after the game, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, of course, he also had the he has had the option of uh, Fabian Delph. Yeah, yeah, he could have played Delph. He could have played Delph in, yeah. in Fernando. And I think one of the interesting things that was, I mean, I, I thought it started to happen a lot more over the course of last season, and definitely this season is Torre when he has played. In a in a midfield three has looked far far more comfortable than he has in a two. I mean, I think you make some great points there. That, that probably to some degree, there's also an element that you also have to manage superstars and attacking midfielders. And when you do play the two central midfielders plus Yaya, then you've got one less spot for to accommodate Sterling and De Bruyne and Silva went fit and Nasri went fit We're and Navas went fit. So, I mean, that is a quandary he's going to have, have to face when Silva comes back. No, Clearly, that's... I mean, is he going to play Silva and Yaya? It's going to be one or the other. Okay, so one-word answers now, please. Rory, are Liverpool making the top four? No. Scoey? No. Ducker? No. All righty. Not much, not much belief. Two games at home all season. Right, moving on to Spurs and West Ham. Rory, you were there. Tottenham haven't lost since opening day. They looked devastating against West Ham, at least to me, despite the absence of Eric Lamella. No, I jest. There's something coming together here. But before you answer that, can you tell me, am I right thinking that they're, they're playing three consecutive derbies in the league? What kind of goofy scheduling is that? Well, it's a Premier League scheduling job, which has inbuilt narrative, which is lovely for journalists, but not particularly, not particularly fair. It's the same scheduling that means that in, whereas every other country in the world... It goes home away, home away, home away, and then the second half of the season mirrors the first half of the season perfectly. But in England, we don't do that. We have home, away, away, home, 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 away, home, 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 away, away. It's ridiculous. 
totally unnecessarily complicated. You, 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 you're a little bit eccentric. You guys are the country that still has to still employ somebody named Black Rod to go and knock on a door, right? So, you know, maybe it's in it's in keeping with that. But, but tell me, should I be excited? about Spurs and our man Poch. Yeah, you should. No, you really should. And it's funny, going back to your last question, I think the reason that Liverpool won't get the top four is because I think Spurs might. Um, they look completely... They've, they've completely bought into what, what Pochettino wants them to do. They're very young, which is good, because I think they are, to use the cliche, fearless. I think they have a, a solid defence. Alderweireld and Vatondran look like they know what they're doing, look like they understand each other. They've got a very hard-working midfield. They've got a relentlessness in the way they play. They've got a very expressive attack. Harry Kane has rediscovered his golden touch. There's, there is something coming together. I think they, they will have, there'll be bumps along the way. They're not perfect, but they, they have, in the least Spurs way possible, built a side. And I think that's to Pochettino's enormous credit. Scoy, I, I need to ask you about Del Alley because obviously, you know, six months ago, this guy was playing in, in, in League One. Now he's scoring a great goal for, for England. He's, I mean, he's turning more and more into a leader of this Tottenham team. He's barely 20 years old. You must have played with or against guys who've come from two divisions down. And these dudes come in, do they have that, that fearlessness or can they go and they can kind of be a little bit afraid? I, I, can you just talk a little bit about the dynamic of yeah. of guys who are used to being the best player on the pitch and then and then they go and, 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 and they face you guys in the Premier League and you're supposed to be better than them? Yeah, it, it's actually a very, very good point. And I was at Wembley on uh, Tuesday night and watched him and I thought he had a very very good game and he had a very good game at the Emirates the time before that I think what's happened and, and it's it's quite interesting at Spurs because Spurs have got a wonderful academy that they've invested millions of pounds in and they've got a bundle of midfield players who are technically very very good and all of a sudden this lad has come out of League One like you say from NK Dons overtaken all of those people and just watching him the other night at Wembley there was you know for his goal he's got an absolutely smashed snidling in midfield, no sort of fear, tackled, and he's just gone on and drove, shot for goal, top corner. So many youngsters now probably wouldn't have tackled because they don't play men's football. If they got the ball, would just pass it to the nearest person. So his experiences of actually playing in League One, like you say, where it is a little bit of rough and tumble, it is, it's actually quite a good high standard now, lower league football. But that sort of 50 games under his belt of playing in stadiums, playing in an atmosphere, playing in, in a winning side where, where winning and losing makes a big difference, I think has catapulted him higher than all of this big generation of academy players. Ducker, do you, do, you, do you see his point? I mean, if compare him and, I don't know, a, a Tom Carroll type or, or maybe even, even Brian Mason. Are these guys, they're not necessarily worse in terms of skill than, than Ali, but... Do you, do you see that that a guy who who plays against adults at a young age might actually have more of a benefit? I think it has a huge impact. I mean, there's so much. I mean, Scurry will know coaching at sort of under 15s level at Ipswich. You'll see it week in week out. There's so much emphasis on technique and was being influenced by other sort of footballing philosophies that being more direct is a huge thing. Really, there's a really interesting report that UEFA did on the Champions League last year about how you know, we're, we're breeding less direct, you know, attacking the field as you like to really run with the ball and not look to pass sideways, but be aggressive and go forward. And I think Dele Alli's got that. I think he's also got, I mean, I, I, you know, he's got a bit of, he's got a bit of needle and menace about, about him. He's got that sort of inbuilt conviction. I always remember, I haven't obviously not watched a lot of MK Dons, but when they battered United 4-0 in the, um, in the League Cup, 
game and Bayern Munich had actually dispatched scouts to go and watch Deli Alley that, that night and he was just absolutely ferocious in, in the field I mean great on the ball when he got it he was so aggressive West Ham completed 286 passes yes sir which is probably about right for a wayside this academy football I think two weeks ago now we, you know we have all the stats these days my under 15s only play 80 minutes as well on average complete about 400 passes so can you see the difference in Academy Andy Carroll for- doesn't pay for your under 15s. No, Do you have an tar- Andy Carroll type on your yeah, team? Yeah, got a target man up front. Right. Can you see the difference? The point I'm trying to make, though, yeah. academy football now is pass, 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 possession, and everything, which is good. But is it reality? Probably not. Right. I, I, it's an interesting parallel because I, I was looking at Ali and trying to sort of figure out. You know, he, he's so he's so multi talented. I mean, there were there were spells when when Kane dropped off and he was often the furthest guy up the pitch, and then other times he'd come back and. Helped die in the cat in, in the tackle. Is there a pal- parallel, perhaps, between him and and Ross Barkley? And who do you like more? Yeah, I think there probably is. I think it was interesting that Pochettino went for, for Dembélé alongside Dyer rather than Ali alongside Dyer, and, and Dembélé pushed further forward. The parallel is probably that both Ali and Barkley can play a number of roles in midfield, but they will only truly excel, and only both are wonderfully sort of rich in promise. They'll only live up to that when when they are given a specific role to play. That doesn't necessarily need to be now, but at some point someone needs to decide. You know, is Deli Ali one of my? Is he my midfield general who kind of sits a bit deeper, who runs the game? Is he my number ten? Is he? He's too good, I think, to be kind of a, an anchor man. But you know, he needs to be given a specific set of kind of instructions if he's going to be able to become a specialist at something rather than just a good all-round midfielder, which is what someone like Ryan Mason is. Who do I like more? I don't know. Probably, I'm tempted to say Ali, but but then Barkley's also really good. I like both right. of them a lot. There you go. Great time to uh, to, to be English then. So one of them will end up playing on the left wing for England. That's more than certain. Did anyone say anything about Christian Eriksen? Because he was absolutely yeah, he was superb. He was superb. So was Dembélé. So was Dembélé. He's such a great schemer, isn't he, Eriksen? He just looks a nightmare to play against. If you see him, you, you're liable to see him not be that influential as well as there are games when he just looks unplayable, but there are times as well when he's sort of he's a little bit on the fringes and he, he's, a, he's pretty to watch but not particularly um, not particularly kind of uh, effective he's quite ornamental at times and he that's always been the problem there it's even back at Ajax they were never quite sure how much he kind of he, he would he would definitely run every game they were never quite convinced who wants to shed some light actually on why West Ham were so poor because I I actually thought that while Spurs played really well West Ham were also were also really quite poor and it can't just be Pyatt. I, I thought I, I love the fact that Billich came out and, uh, and he was just so honest about why they were why they were so bad and, and so ineffective. They were they were okay for the first twenty minutes, and funny enough, just just before the first goal, there was an, there was another attack, and it kind of broke down because the Spurs player took took a pass when he didn't need to take a pass, and the, the crowd sort of went, oh, you know, you can hear that murmur of discontent go around a, a, a ground. And I thought, hang on, West Ham might, might have something here because Spurs are getting a little bit frustrated. And then they scored. It was a terrible, terrible piece of defending from Carl Jenkins into the goal. West Ham were complicit, I think, in certainly three of the four goals. Maybe not Walkers, although by that time it looked like they stopped running. But certainly the first three, West Ham really could have stopped. Their form's turned a little bit the last, last few weeks, hasn't it? West Ham, they've, they've now not won, I think, three. Sounds like really sort of poor analysis. But the first goal just seemed to rob them of all conviction and that they never really got back from that. I'm one of the people who watches Match of the Day too. It kind of cycles back to what we talked about earlier with uh, with the way Liverpool press, you know, sort of juxtaposing that with the way Spurs press. And they made the point, I think it was Trevor Sinclair and Casper Schmeichel, that if you're a West Ham, maybe instead of playing it out from the back, 
you know, once in a while if we just kind of booted it to Andy Carroll. It might not have been a, a bad idea. It seems to be like one way, one way, one way only. We won't mix it up at all. And I, I was watching, I mean, I've not watched the whole game, the whole West Ham game like Rory, but I was watching it and I just thought, you know, West Ham, they're just doing the same thing all the time. Yeah. You're, just not, you're not learning whatsoever. You are getting hounded to death in your sort of own third. You know, try and mix it up a little bit. And like you say, I mean, you know, poofing it up to hat. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Andy Carroll, every game is not going to always work, it's not always going to be effective, and people will suss you out. But you would think they would have tried to... I know, obviously, Billich, West Ham, you know, tr- traditionally, they'd like to get it on the floor and play, but... I think sometimes you've got to find a way to win in a game. Well, even you've got to fi- find a way to counter something that clearly isn't working. And even if uh, you do it every every third time, it, 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 it forces them to be less aggressive. The reason managers don't like that long ball finish because it is essentially a lottery. You're you're poofing the ball forward. You may there, there is more of a chance that you will lose it than if you conserve possession. Obviously, but there is a there is a th- that is the way around the press. I remember being, being at the at the classic here, the uh, I think two two or three years ago when Bayern won 3-0 at Dortmund, and the, re- the way that Bayern won 3-0 at Dortmund was instead of passing it around, Guardiola told his players to bypass the midfield. So Guardiola said, right, they're going to press us, we know they're going to press us, we go long. That is the way, that is the way to beat a pressing system. Yeah, have somebody fast run a, a, guy, like, uh, a guy like Hummels. We, we're going to move on now to Madrid and um, the Classico. I, by the way, I'm just really curious, instant poll, I met the chairman of Barry, and he told me that he wasn't going to watch the Classico. He was going to watch uh, City and Liverpool. Obviously, uh, you know, leaving aside work commitments, and you had no choice. You had to watch City and Liverpool. Which game would you? Which game would you, would you have watched, Ducker? Don't know. I'd probably be influenced by what my kids wanted to watch. I'd let them pick. Well, would you? Are you, are your kids the kind of people who would rather watch Neymar and Suarez, or are they the kind of people yeah, the, the who six, would who would rather six, go and, and watch Angola? The, the six, so they're obviously interested in Neymar and obviously Messi was on the bench and Suarez and right. big names like that. So, so they're Barcelona fans, right? Scoey, yeah. Madrid, Barcelona, Rory. I was at home and I watched them and I flicked between the two, which is a sensible, cho- sensible choice. Yes, I know, but imagine imagine you only have one television and the remote control is broke. No, no, I don't want to imagine that. That's unrealistic. It's the 21st century. I've got a remote control. I've got 400 channels. I've watched a little bit of both and considered flicking it onto Homes Under the Hammer as well. 
There you go. That, that, that's that's an excellent choice. I thought this Classico was actually more one-sided than uh, than the Manita one that, that Mourinho lost. I, I just thought it was an absolute beatdown. I wrote a column on this, this very issue, and it seems to me that you can broadly blame three factors. One is Florentino Perez, which maybe is a little more technical, so if you want, you can read my column. We can talk about that. Um, but the other one is, do you blame the manager for playing a goofy system, or... Do you blame the players for not showing up? I want to start with you, James, because when you're on the end of of, of such a of such a beatdown, I mean, we assume that the players go on the pitch to try and to, to execute what the manager tells them to do, and so when stuff like this happens, it's got to be the manager, right? No, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think it's very hard to to say to any game or, or win or loss that it's down to one thing. You know, there's many different factors in football. You know, they make so many changes, Madrid, with managers, with players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that there just isn't the the consistency that Barcelona have had a, over the last few seasons. You know, if you look at you know Neymar, how settled he looks because the likes of the biscuits, the the Javis, the you know the PKs now they've got a very very settled side, a very settled squad with a, a philosophy. They play in a certain way, they play in a certain style, and I think uh, that that strikes the main one for me. Listen, you can pick out individual things. You can say to the manager, the manager under is under massive pressure at Madrid, so that pressure is going to wear off onto the players. Where you know, Barcelona is the manager under the same kind of pressure? No, not really. There's so well, many different I, little factors, you know. For, for me, just Madrid is just a, a circus that... I, I'll, I'll tell you what, if Luis Enrique did not start Lionel Messi, uh, if as a result of that they had lost that game, you can bet that he would have a major issue on his hands, as, he's, as he has done in the past when he, when he didn't start Messi. Roy, really? Yes, you know, this is Luis Enrique we're talking about. They lose that game, then, then, then they're level at the top of the table, um, and that's not good. Rory, I think we both have a soft spot for... Uh, uh, for Rafa, and I'm going to give a little bit of background here for those who don't follow this, this that closely, but basically Real Madrid are a crazy lopsided team if you play the 11 most famous players. Um, that was part of the, the reason Ancelotti struggled at the end, trying to make sense of it. Rafa in some ways has had a slightly fortunate ride in the sense that James has been injured, so he could play Casemiro and, and give some semblance of order to the side. In this game, he fielded a lineup that was completely incoherent, and it looked like exactly like the Panini sticker lineup that his president, Florentino Perez, would have would have fielded. Uh, Tony Kroos and Luka Modric in midfield on their own, being bombarded. Gareth Bale, freaking Gareth Bale in the hole. Uh, James uh, and, and Ronaldo on the flanks. Ronaldo unhappy. There is a school of thought that says this was Rafa's way of saying, see, Mr. President, I'll do things your way. And this isn't going to work. And in fact, it didn't work. Do, do you uh, buy into that? Is, is that the... would be a very, very risky ploy. And I mean, Rafa's not, not averse to a little bit of political shenanigans. But I think that even that is, is probably a little bit Machiavellian. And okay, but then that means that, that Rafa thought that this was the best possible lineup and approach well, no, and right. tactics. And he really thinks it's a good idea to play Gareth Bale in the hole. No, I suspect that's not true either. I think the, the truth probably lies somewhere in between, which is that. The problem that Madrid have got, and Stroey touches on it, I, I think that Barcelona ha, ha, is, is just as pressurised an environment, except when things are going well. When obviously the last, the pressure is is, is free, you're free of pressure when things are going well at both clubs. When as soon as things even vaguely go badly, I mean, Rafa went into this game under pressure. They only lost once in the lead, haven't they? Before Saturday, I think what Rafa probably did, as other managers have done at Real Madrid before him, is field a, the best team he could 
to cope not only with the pressure to win the game from the fans, from the players, from the fact that it's Real Madrid, but to cope with the fact that you have to keep Florentino happy. So I certainly don't think Rafa played that team thinking, right, these these lot will get get battered and it'll prove a point for me. That doesn't work with Florentino. He's not going anywhere. But I think he probably did feel that he had to include all of those names because that's what Florentino wants. And that's a real problem at Madrid. there There is something about Real Madrid at the moment that makes you wonder if it is essentially unmanageable as a club. Not only the fact that Perez sacked Ancelotti basically for the sake of sacking Ancelotti, which was a ridiculous decision in the first place. Not only because the fans demand constant victories and some sort of style, but also they realise that you don't necessarily, they don't have the players to play in the way that Barcelona do. And then they liked Mourinho, who didn't play with any real style either. And the fans seem to want something that's quite kind of nebulous and doesn't really exist. And then you've got the fact that the players seem to be able to, to be ready to kick off at the, their manager at any point. And it is a, it is a crazy situation. And look, Rafa, it looked to me, watching half of the game and the other half of the City game, looked to me like Rafa got his system wrong, no question about that. It also looked to me like the players weren't trying des- desperately hard, certainly after the, the first couple of goals. But you wonder, is there a manager out there who could actually get, I don't know, who can deal with that situation? M- Mourinho kind of did, but kind of didn't. Well, Mourinho had different players. Though. Mourinho had a more yeah. rational squad this squad is completely completely irrational you can't win every game of football no no team's ever done it so you're going to lose games so when you do like now it's all you know the world's ended blah 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 you got to get on with it Uh, ducker there's a school of thought that says that ultimately it'll come to a head and that gareth bale and cristiano ronaldo cannot coexist in the same team mainly because you have two guys who really contribute almost nothing uh, uh, defensively, at least at this stage of his career and, and, and with this manager. And so, therefore, one of them will be sold. And so I, I, I saw Louis van Gaal talking about Cristiano. It struck me, and my interpreter, and you probably know a lot more about this because you're closer to van Gaal, that it was a case of, you know, somebody asking him for the 99th time, would you consider signing Cristiano Ronaldo? And eventually van Gaal came, comes out and says... Yes, I would, because he'd be an idiot not to, rather than going and and hiding behind some stupid, meaningless cliche the way most managers do and, and are probably right to do, given uh, our reaction in the media. Am I right here? Is that all it was? I don't know. Sometimes I think with, I think with the likes of Mourinho and Ferguson, there's a lot of strategic answering of questions. I think with Van Gaal, I don't really think there is. I think he just, if he wants to answer something... He'll just answer it, and I don't really think he puts too much thought onto the, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the deep layers of reasoning behind that. He's he's been asked the Ronaldo question before, and he's answered it in a not dissimilar fashion, saying he's a brilliant player. So why do we make such a big deal out of this? I mean, he's, he's stating the obvious. It's kind of like if you said, "Hey, Louis, would you want to spend the weekend with Kate Upton?" He'd he'd say yes. Yeah, but well. I mean, last night that's just another discussion gab. I think a lot of United fans will be interested in their manager saying that. I'd like to sign Cristiano Ronaldo. I think you know. I don't, I don't still think that qualifies as a story. James, this has run on for years, though, hasn't it? This story. It, it, I mean, it's almost boring now. I think the, one of the bigger issues is United. You know, they've wanted to sign this Galactico sort for a long, long time, and they haven't been able to pull it off yet. And I think a lot of fans are thinking, realistically, looking at the last few years, if if we are going to get one next summer is a chance, and if we can't get one then, can we ever actually deliver one of these players? And I think there's, <laughs> there's another chain of thought, is that he got a, a very, very high-profile 
player and De Maria and couldn't manage him and sold him. So God knows how he would manage Ronaldo. Um, Do you not think, James, there's a, uh, there's a little sort of... United are starting to turn into a Real Madrid, i.e. the way they go and sign players. For me, Ronaldo wouldn't fit into United. I'm not quite sure where you'd play him. Wouldn't fit into Van Gaal's philosophy. I think there, I think there is. I think the. I mean, United will say, well, you know, Van Gaal's given debuts to 29 players, and we're still committed to youth and everything. But the next, I think, the next sort of year, 18 months, will tell us a lot more about which direction that club is headed. And I think, I mean, the the, the man running the sort of club now is in the commercial elements of the club and he's made no attempts to hide how much easier it is to sell and strike sponsorship deals and market things when you've got a Cristiano Ronaldo or a Neymar or a Bale type as a as a figurehead at the sort of top of the club it, it makes everything so much easier and, I mean they, they, by the same token as they they have deferred so much to Van Gaal and giving him so much that he wants that they will also say, well, the players we sign come down to the manager and not not the executive ship, and I definitely think that's the case. Well, I mean, this is an argument for a whole other time, but this is part of the insanity here where you've got Van Gaal's only going to be around one more season, right? He's said that every which way, and if you're going to go and sign a Bale or a Cristiano, you'll be committing enormous amounts of money for, for, for a lot of time. So maybe it shouldn't just be the manager deciding that. I think they're both going to end up staying, or certainly Cristiano will, because for the simple reason, there aren't too many places where he can go. I can't see Cristiano going to, to United and playing under Van Gaal for a year. I, I just don't see how that how that would work. He's, he's obviously, you know, Arsenal are going to spend money on him. City have a bazillion attacking players. He's not going to move to Barcelona. The only option is Paris Saint-Germain, which is... A little bit depressing, frankly, for if you're if you're Cristiano. Plus, at PSG, who knows? There's the risk that Mourinho might rock up there one day. And and with Bale too, I is Bale what Manchester United need? Is Bale a, a Fanhao type player, a guy who'd fit into the system? What, what, what's your view? My view is similar to yours. I think it's it's been a very kind of easy narrative. Oh, Ronaldo and Bale can't play together. That's not necessarily what you hear from. From, from Madrid there doesn't seem to it's not like there's any great personal tension between them I think there's a difficulty getting them both on the same side to an extent but I don't think it's the case that they kind of resent each other I'm, I'm the same I'm, I know what you mean about PSG and Ronaldo but do you not think that the the key figure to all of that including the does Mourinho rock up there is is George Mendes who runs European football so I'm sure he'll be able to f- sort that out in some way well that, that that's the fascinating thing isn't it right well, what if because we fear George Mendes right you don't want to be in a situation where you have to find a, a home for Ronaldo and Mourinho at the same no. time. It's right? there's only one club. There's only one club <laughs> exactly. Well, I suppose you can you can persuade Mourinho to 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 take another take a sabbatical and send him to United, uh, and then you can send Cristiano to um, to Paris Saint Germain. Look, this is what football's become. You think Ed Woodward makes decisions? You think Peter Lim makes decisions? You think uh, these clubs make the decisions? Increasingly, it's one man. It's one man moving his little his little pieces across the uh, European board game. It's like the, the board game Risk. He just moves his little bits around. Right, enough Real Madrid, and uh, I apologize in advance for this foray away from the Premier League. Uh, won't happen again for a while. Uh, let's do some quick hits instead. Arsenal stumble against West Brom, and to make matters worse, they lose uh, Francis Coughlin for an extended period. Ducker, given that they're not exactly teaming with defensive midfielders, is this where their title challenge grinds to a halt? 
Well, that would suggest that they were realistic title challenges, and I've never been deeply convinced about that. Ouch. Yes, they've got got a lot of uh, players out, Arteta, midfielders out, Arteta, Ramsey, Wilshire, etc. But if you are depending on uh, the likes of Goggolin for a title challenge, then no. That is a really good point. It's like you lose Francis Cockle, you're like, uh oh, we're screwed now. I mean, we're not talking Alexis Sanchez or Mason Utsel and Bizarro. No Martial, no Rooney. So Memphis steps into the front role, and Manchester United actually play reasonably well, at least in my opinion, as they take all three points against Watford. Scoey, are you are you encouraged? Are things starting to look up, or are you going to be all sort of northern and scolzy and gloomy about this? Uh, I'm going to follow the line of Paul Scholes. It was extremely hard work uh, at the weekend. United had to rely on De Gea once again to pull off a couple of saves, did their best to throw it away, and I was told it was their first injury time winning goal since the post-Fergie era, but I do believe the goal was on 89 minutes, 56 seconds, so it's probably not quite. A bit like watching paint drive. First half was okay. Big game next weekend. Uh, Chelsea overcome Norwich at home to win only their first league game in more than a month. Diego Costa was the difference maker, uh, but this time, Rory, okay, at the risk of being exposed as a fool like I was with United, I thought they actually looked really, really good, at least relative to their previous outings. Well, so I didn't see the entire game. Obviously, I'm relying on the, on the highlights, Gab. Uh, but I'm trying to didn't say what Strowey said. I thought they looked okay. They looked better. You're, you're, you're right that they looked better than they have previously. Was It was only Norwich who, who wouldn't have necessarily expected to get three points at Stamford Bridge. But the overall thing I'm drawing from this entire conversation is that your standards are really slipping. Well, I, 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 try, to, I try to be a positive person, and I try to see the glass of, as half full, and I, I thought they... They play better than they've done in, in a while, so so sue me. And I was against the Norwich side with, with my man Nathan Redmond back as well. Romelu Lukaku scores two as Everton beat up Aston Villa 4-0. Uh, in the process, he scores his 50th and 51st goals. Only four men have reached a 50-goal mark in the Premier League quicker. Uh, their names are Cristiano Ronaldo, Wayne Rooney, Michael Owen, and God, Robbie Fowler. Ducker, which of those guys, if any, will he match or indeed even surpass? I don't think he will match or surpass any of that quartet, but I don't think that's a... Not even Michael Owen? I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, Owen scored a lot of... Owen scored a lot of goals, Gab, still. I mean, he's got 150 goals in the Premier League still, but no, I, I think he's 22. He'll have a lot more goals in him, and he'll do well. I think the big issue is with any player these days is how long can he actually be around in the league anyway. I mean, he might be here for two years he might be here for six but it wouldn't surprise, it wouldn't surprise anyone if he left and went off somewhere somewhere new so I think that's a big obstacle to it but a lot of good days ahead of him A third of the way in, Leicester are top of the table and Jamie Vardy has scored in 10 consecutive games uh, Scoey, two questions for you Are you a little more convinced that your former club can finish in the top four or at least finish ahead of Chelsea? And given that the actual record is scoring in 12 consecutive games, 10 straight is just for the uh, Premier League era. Should we wait to uncork the champagne until uh, Vardy matches one Jimmy Dunn of Sheffield United? I, I don't think uh, Leicester will finish in the top four. I think the next six fixtures will sort them out. I think they've got Manchester United, Swansea away, Everton, Liverpool, Chelsea, Man City. A lot of pants. Yeah, they've got a tough uh, run coming up. Vardy deserves every bit of credit he gets to score in 10 consecutive games in the Premier League is a fantastic achievement. Just reading, I think every single goal has been in the penalty box as well, 18-yard box. He's almost like an old-fashioned centre-forward. Like where, Jimmy Dunn? 
Yeah, exactly. You know, do you used to watch Jimmy? Slightly before my time. No, but I, I, I always find this thing humorous, this, this sort of demarcation that they keep driving home and we keep buying into. I mean, it is a tremendous, 10 straight is a tremendous achievement. But, you know, I, I'm glad at least we're talking about this guy. Oh, it's fantastic. Who, it's a know. wonderful And it's fair play. And I don't think he's got the credit he deserves yet. Claudio Ranieri, I think he should be given. Uh, he got a lot of criticism when he came in. I think now he should get a lot of praise off you guys. Luis Felipe Scolari, Felipon, may have been a dud at the World Cup, but he achieved something only one other manager in the history of the universe has ever achieved on Saturday. And uh, it came 501 days exactly uh, after that that horrible night against the Germans. Uh, Rory, you wrote a piece about this. Care to tell us more? Yeah, so uh, Felipao has um, has won the Asian Champions League with Guangzhou Everdrand. Uh the, the other man to have not only won two different continental titles, but also won the World Cup, is of course Marcello Lippi, which suggests that Scolari is in uh, is in good company. It's, it's obviously a bit of redemption for Scolari himself after the lowest point of his career, but I think the greater significance is that Guangzhou look like they are Asia's first truly global, globally significant team in terms of the way they have not only changed the transfer market in China and in the rest of Asia, but they're also starting to influence the South American market, they're starting to influence the European market, because they are taking players who would otherwise go to Europe to China. And that, that is potentially, not necessarily this year or next year, but over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that could actually be quite important for everybody. Uh, so they're probably a team that you should try and become slightly familiar with because you'll be hearing a lot more about them. There's well, a lot, a lot of money in China now. Some of, some of the salaries being paid are astronomical. Well, it, it, a couple of things to that. The Chinese economy, by their standards, is slowing down a little bit, but that could, could be a blip. But the interesting thing is... Still treble what our economy is. You, you don't just do it by growth. You do it by per capita GDP, and they're still far behind. This you. is why people listen to the game, because we end up talking about the Chinese economy. No, exactly. But the interesting... they, don't, they don't do this on Football Weekly, do they? <laughs> the, they, haven't, they haven't got the knowledge, that's why. The, <laughs> the interesting thing, I, I think, is... I mean, we've, we've already seen teams in the Gulf and whatnot go and, and, and take players from Europe when you know at the peak of their career or really promising guys from South America Lancini of course ended up going there uh, before coming to West Ham um, but obviously with China you have the critical mass that they could actually create something sustainable because it's a big country I, unlike I think they the Emirates could smash or, the MLS I think the MLS that could actually damage the MLS because I think all oh, the, the Gerards and Lampards in five ten years time will go to China instead of America well that's what that's what your man Alessandro Diamanti did of course Gab one for you. Inter Milan are still top of Serie A, but I hear they're finally scoring some goals. Indeed, they actually scored four goals. It's the first time uh, this season that they've won a game by a score other than 1-0. Uh, they're top of the table on 30 points. They, they they beat Frosinone, who are a newly promoted side, who are approaching the Serie A season as kind of like a, a fun ride. We'll try to outscore you in every single game, and obviously they leave themselves open at the back, and they're not that good, although they are very fun to watch. And so hence the four goals, but uh, I think we will find out whether Mancini's for real uh, a week from Monday because uh, they have a top-of-the-table clash up against uh, Maurizio Sarri's Napoli. So Napoli stay tuned going for that. well, too. Napoli, fantastic. My man Iguain, absolutely on fire. He might be the best Argentine center forward in the world right now. Give it... Well, I mean, he's not fully fit, and Aguero's only been back for one game, so give it some time. Right. Yeah, Fiorentina as well, Gab. Fiorentina doing well. Fiorentina doing well too. Of course, they were they were two 0 up against uh, Empoli, and, and which is a local derby, and uh, it looked like everybody's freaking out. 
and my man Nikola Kalinic coming back, scoring two, and uh, and they grabbed a point. So, uh, and your tip for the Serie A title champions 2016 is my original tip was Roma. Uh, I'll stick to that. Although uh, uh, they dropped points at the weekend, drawing two-two with uh-huh. Bologna. That's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my guests today, James Scowcroft, James Ducker, and making his return after his uh, four-week suspension uh, from the game podcast. (laughs) I don't think he was too disappointed about it because he was gallivanting across uh, Asia and Oceania. It's Rory K. Smith. Please, please, please press that subscribe button. If you do that, you can hear us every single week, which is good, uh, both if you like us and it's also good if you don't like us because if you're into masochism, it could actually be kind of kinky. Remember, you can get exclusive football, rugby, and cricket highlights free as part of your subscription if you subscribe to The Times. It's just £12 for a 12-week trial. Search The Times online. Till next week, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. You're away.